This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. The NBA is back. Where else can a city this loud be this left on? And 30 feet is still in range. Where else is history? Still in the make. The NBA, only here. Season begins December 22nd on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. Welcome to Talking Halos. This is Derek C. Paul, my co-host, my partner in crime, John Crane. And we're here to talk about a rough couple of days here in Angel Land. Angels drop a three-game set with the Tigers, two games to one. It was, I guess, I think it's backbreaking for the season overall if you're looking for contention. And, by the way, the trade deadline is now in the rear view mirror. And, by the way... The trade deadline is now in the rear view mirror. So, I guess that's where I'll pick up. John, how you doing, man? Yeah, just, I guess, a little a little surprised about the trade deadline passing. Uh, on the bright side, we did even the series 3-3 with Detroit. So, there's a, there's a, you know, a walk away there, drop the mic sort of a situation. Um, but, you know, I mean, to be honest with you, my... John, my, John, but, John, 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 John. Actually, I hate to tell you this. I think maybe you had a rough day at work, man. They evened the series up with us because they won today 9-1 to one and embarrassed yes. us. So immensely. we split the series 3-3. Three, three. <laughs> there's, there's a win. I didn't... However you want to phrase it, I said the correct thing. We broke even with the Detroit Tigers, okay? Remember... Uh, Lance Parrish and Alan Trammell and oh my gosh and uh, Oak uh, Morris yeah this is did you hit a time warp and go to 1984 <laughs> is that what you did this is 2019 yeah. man that was 35 years ago <laughs> this is the worst team in baseball and let's admit it here the Angels just got themselves hammered today and in the series heck the last. The last seven games, or they go two and five against the league's worst two teams right now. And if you're an Angels fan, heck, if you're an Angels player, I know I know Jeff Fletcher from the Orange County Register had an article out today, and the team was unhappy too. It's not just a fan base; of course, they're unhappy. They, they needed the series, they needed the Orioles series, and now the, the gauntlet will soon begin for this team. I'm looking at what is a clearly a. Um, now a mark to survival, in my view. And I hate to take the pessimist approach. Oh, and by the way, folks, the last part of the show today, former Angels pitcher C.J. Wilson visits for a multi-part interview because I got to tell you, 
CJ has a lot to say. <laughs> I hope you enjoy it, and we're very happy to have him on the show. All right, so, John, why don't you tell folks about where they can find us and everything, because I kind of just don't have words right now to express what we just witnessed the last seven days. Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spreaker, Spotify, and uh, wherever podcasts are available. You really did have a long day at work, man. <laughs> you Who really did, I did. You did, didn't you? Oh, here, folks, look. John, we got to get you a light alcoholic beverage or something to get you livened up. Okay, livened up. Folks, Listen, this, this team... <laughs> This team, I, I, I've, I've officially dropped all, you know, I, I, I want to try to be, and I think some people think I'm too positive anyways, but, you know, what we've seen in the last week, we've seen, you know, us people, uh, you know, criticizing Griffin Canning for his performance. Now Matt Feist is the, is the, is the, is the, is the you know, the, the goat. The flavor well, of the he day. was the, now he's a flavor of the day, right? Yeah. Okay. Yes, and both players, again, we have discussed this before, probably in a better situation would still be down in the minor leagues. But they're up here, and they're performing well, and I hope Matt continues to perform well, and I hope that fans, if he has a rough week, he has a rough two weeks, that fans don't turn on him as quickly as we turn on, uh, you know, they turn on Griffin Canning. These are kids that really shouldn't, even be here and everything they contribute to us is is just contributions towards our future you mean the angels future the angels future yeah that our future as angel fans our future so uh i just you know i guess i'm I'm really happy to see these young guys and i think this is what we've been preaching for a while and i think this is now we are at that point where we are going to be developing for the future and not and the expectations i think have been lifted i think the trade deadline kind of shown some light on that that this is it this is what we're going with and uh because we didn't get anything and uh so so i have a new attitude today and, and it's kind of a less stressed attitude you said i need to no what i'm well i'll tell you what you sound like you sound like either a you've had a bit of pot um which i don't think is a case no, no, or no. B, you sound tired. One of the two. Uh, yeah, I'll go for the tired part. Okay. Right. I mean, I, I, usually I have about a half hour, forty five minutes to recover from my drive from work, but today is pretty much at about five minute uh, time to recover from my work. Um, but anyways, no, I'm good. I'm good. And, and and then I got to miss the game today. Um, darn. It sure was was a nail biter. I, I I was really disappointed to miss that game. Oh. Do I understand correctly that a, a young uh, Michael Trout was our is responsible for our only run? He is, and and actually, you know, John, the game was very interesting early. So they just lost it late. They fell apart late. Started kind of giving this one away in the fourth inning, and but early on, Suarez looked all right. The reality is, is this team just is not. They're not playing well. I mean, it's they're not. I mean, <laughs> I wish I had better words. I wish I was able to be more articulate with that description. Every team goes through slumps. This was the worst time humanly possible for this team to go through a slump. Right at the trade deadline against the two the two worst teams in baseball, and um, now they're going to go off east and face the Indians. 
one of the best teams in baseball. So it's going to be difficult. Where, where are the Indians? What state do they play in? Ohio. Ohio. Is that where you're, you're going to be going to one of those games? Or you're going to I'll be, be yeah, at Saturday. I'll be at Saturday. We have we have family coming in to visit, and I would be at all three of the family if they weren't in. But I can only make one, Damn. so I, I'm a little sad about that. You never know. If you are at the game in Cleveland, please buzz us on Facebook or on Twitter. Let me know you're there, and we'll try and say hello. Get a couple pictures, you know, things like that. All right, so. Because John did a really bad job with this, because John was off in La La Land. Let me see if I can do this right, and maybe I won't. We are just getting started here as a podcast, but if you like what we're doing, please check us out on Apple Music, subscribe. We'd also really appreciate a five-star review to really help us move up the charts. If you want us to earn that five-star review, great. We'd love you to just send us some feedback and let us know what we can do better to earn that five-star review. And if you are a new listener and join the show, we'd really appreciate you going out there and letting other Angels fans know about us. Just send a text or a phone call or a Facebook message, just whatever you can do to uh, to share us out. We really appreciate it. And to all of our listeners who really, man, you've you've made a difference. We've we've built a solid core of loyal listeners, and the numbers show it. So thank you very much. The Detroit series itself leaves us with one question, John, and that question is, "What now?" For the rest of the season, heading into 2020, well, what now, Let John? Let the kids play. Let the kids play. Let them play. Like, who are the kids? Dice. Let's just keep him up. Uh, canning. Keep him. Keep sending him out there. I love it. That six, six scoreless innings today. Uh, no, uh, that was yesterday. Six scoreless innings yesterday. Wow. That's jaw-dropping for me. He did a great job. Good for him. Yeah. Great job. The thing for me, I, I guess it's all right to leave the kids up. In some cases, I would argue sending some down and bringing up some of the, let's just say, organizational depth, save some service time, maybe give them some more time to work one-on-one in the minors and, and tweak some things so that they're better prepared for next year. I think it depends on the mentality of the player, where the player, uh, what each individual player, where they're at mentally. Some may do better away from the spotlight of being in the major leagues. We have no idea still how, you know, how the Skaggs um, passing away is affecting these guys mentally as way as well. So I think in terms of what you're saying, play the kids. I, that's it's fine as long as it's case by case. You measure where each person's at mentally, see if they would do better out of the spotlight or better in the spotlight. That's just to me. I, I wish they never would have had to call up Griffin until it was really ready, but they had to call him up and the same for Tice. I wish I wish they could have given him more time, but guess what? Both guys are they're fine. You hit me with the stick of rationality because you you just pointed out to me without pointing it out to me that I am contradicting every that I just contradicted myself in the same podcast because earlier I was saying these guys shouldn't be here they should be down in the minor leagues so that does make a lot of sense what you're saying is just bring up some some guys who aren't necessarily part of our long term future and let them fill in any spots that need to be filled in and, and let those guys develop a little bit more. But uh, I think really they kind of have to like, you know, they have to cool off before I think you can justify sending them down. Well, in some cases they are cooled off. What I'm really saying is you you don't base it on overall on-field play. 
Mm-hmm. I think at this point, you have to make a decision, are we still trying to go for the playoffs or not? And we, no. as a fan, will probably say, listen, you have like a 0.8% chance of making the playoffs. No, just just start preparing for next year. But at the organizational level, they have a lot of responsibilities to the fan base, to sponsors, and so on and so forth, even to players. Those are judgments beyond our call, so we don't know exactly how they're going to focus. But if the focus becomes developing young talent, you go case-by-case basis, you you really examine what each player needs, and in many cases, yeah, you're right, you leave the kids up. In some cases where they might do better with a little bit of one-on-one time away from the spotlight in the minor leagues, or maybe they just need to get in there with some coaches they have good relationship with at the lower levels, then you go, you send them. Of course, there's always the obvious to try and save service time as well. So there's numerous, numerous reasons to send people down. Well, on the bright side, Derek, not to distract you, but we won't have to play Detroit or Baltimore in the playoffs if we make the playoffs. So that we got that going for us. <laughs> you know, to quote the great Rick James on the Chappelle <laughs> show, cocaine is a hell of a drug. <laughs> I'm awake now. How's that? I'm good. <laughs> yeah, my gosh. Well, a couple things here, a couple notes on this Detroit series. I don't want to spend too much time on when I get to the trade deadline and, and kind of address some of the concerns we saw on, on Facebook and Twitter and so on and so forth today. And we saw a lot of it. The series of Detroit wasn't good in terms of offensively. We can complain about the pitching, and the pitching at times was just awful. But offensively, the team did not step up. Justin Upton remains in a slump. Cole Calhoun wasn't great. Mike Trout's been struggling some. They just picked the wrong time to go in a slump. They didn't have one good game, the middle game, the Griffin Cannon game, that they played pretty well. But even in that game, they were fortunate to get away with a couple errors and a couple misplays by Detroit Tigers defense. And so that wasn't great. What were your overall thoughts on the series, John? I was just, you know, I mean, I guess the nightmare continuing because we just really came into both of these with the expectation that they were going to build up, you know, build up some momentum to go into Cleveland where they're going to be going into on Friday. Uh, So uh, just, you know, I was already, I've really been, my expectations dropped on that over that, that, um, that extra inning game against Baltimore when we lost that. And I just, it's never, I've, my expectations have been lowered and they kind of just met my expectations during these, this Detroit didn't surprise me at this point. I mean, if you'd asked me before, do I think we'd win? I'd probably say, yeah, we, yeah, we would, would get two, but that they, that they only got one doesn't surprise me at this point with this team. And, you know, it's just hard. This team, you can't tell what's, you know, I mean, the things that have happened this season are just beyond comprehension. And I don't think you can get far enough away from it to say that it's not affecting them. Because it is. Well, I, we can't, I can't make that judgment call, but I will say this. They already had issues, especially in the pitching staff before, Tyler passed away. It's a little bit deeper than that. It's going to be a hard year for them no matter what. And one has to wonder if maybe the reason why they didn't really sell today, the trade deadline, was because these guys maybe need each other. 
I don't know. Or maybe they didn't get good enough offers, or maybe there wasn't interest. Who knows why some of these veterans that maybe should have been moved weren't moved today. But I can tell you that it's a bit of a complicated situation with the Angels right now. And it's been there all year. John, you, we, we've talked about this. It's it's so easy if this team is a 50-win, 60-win team to say, eh, let's just tear it down. But they're not. They're good enough to win between 75 and 85 games, depending on where the wind's blowing. And that's a problem because, really, you're kind of stuck in neutral. You can't build the way you would want to build if you're doing a full rebuild. But you're not good enough to be a division winner at 100 wins or 95 wins or even 90 wins at this point. Well, see, and I guess it's, it's, I don't want them to tear it down to nothing. I just want them to, this is very similar to the Clippers during uh, the, you know, with uh, Griffin and um, Chris Paul and DeAndre Jordan. They, they needed, they needed a couple pieces more to, in our case, we need more, but we need them in the pitching department. Uh, But we need at least a couple strong Griffin Canning performances can, that we can depend on at least, you know, twice a week. Um, and we don't have that right now. So I don't want them to tear it down, but we need to acquire a piece. I just thought it was very, in- I mean, you may, I, I understand Stasi is a, you know, he's a def- defensive guy. All the rumors were that they were going to be getting rid of uh, Lucroy, that Lucroy was a potential candidate. People were interested in him. And not only do they not get, they not get rid of Lucroy, they acquire another catcher. <laughs> so, uh, and of course they sent uh, one down. But. Well, they they DFA'd Garneau, which to me yeah. is tough because Garneau's played hard. And you know, sometimes that's the, the part of the business you really just hate. Kevin Smith apparently has some issues in terms of his health. So we'll see. The Angels have to make a move, by the way, before Friday's game with Stasi because he's out of options. Stasi comes well-regarded, a great defensive catcher, doesn't have much of a bat. The big thing for him, he's got three years of control left with him. And mm-hmm. the Angels give up two 18-year-olds, basically, two young talents that are not part of the top 30. And uh, it's interesting because I, social media, Angels' social media is crazy, man. And so many people are upset that we're we're seeing folks not always think things through, and we're, if we're not careful, we won't think it through. I'm I've seen I saw somebody today literally make the argument that Billy Epler is a horrible general manager because he wasn't willing to part with prospects to go get a pitcher. Yes, and they, and they and they quoted Houston. They said they're talking about Houston. What a good farm mm-hmm. system could you know good prospects can get you. I think I saw that. Yep. And then when they make the trade for Stassi today, the same person was ridiculing the Angels for parting with two young prospects for this catcher. I didn't see that part. <laughs> I, I was like, you just, these are two prospects that are low level. And the Angels clearly don't have high hopes for, and you're upset about them trading these prospects away for a catcher that's one of the better defensive catchers in the league as a backup anyways, well-respected in Houston. There, there's actually an article out there that, asked the, that advocated for the Astros not to trade them. And here, 
that's exactly what they do. That's they trade him, and and you have the same guy now who was arguing that the Angels were wrong for not being able to trade prospects for a pitcher. They're wrong. For, they're now wrong for trading prospects. Make up your mind, honestly. If you want this team to make some moves, fine, but be consistent here. The reality to me is this: when we saw various reports throughout throughout the day, and and tell me if I'm wrong, John. Tell me if you, if you disagree with me. But the way I gathered it was this: the Angels realized they weren't in good shape for the playoffs. So the only way they were going to really make a move is if they were able to get a pitcher they wanted that is controllable long-term. I believe they're happy overall with their position players, hence why we didn't see a position player move. Mm-hmm. And the the farm system is very strong in position player depth, as we've seen by some of the young guys coming up. When the Angels did not get the deal they wanted for a pitcher, they didn't bite on a bad deal. In other words, it was reported that everybody was on the table except Joe Adele. And now at that point, you're putting your organizational farm system's value up against the value of a set pitcher. Mm -hmm. This comes down to economics 101, supply and demand. If something is in demand, but it's scarce, what do people usually do to get that scarce item? Inflate to price, pay too much. Exactly. So the angels. We've done that. We've done that a few times. We've done it. We have a history of doing it, and people criticize us, criticize the organization, and are critical of them today for that exact reason. It, and that was the point that I was making today in social media was: listen, if they would have went out there and traded a bunch of prospects for Bumgarner or whoever else. A lot of people would have been complaining that they paid too much because they probably would have paid too much. Actually, they would have had to pay too much. It's just the market, that's what it was. Those same people now are mad that the Angels didn't make a move. It's just, no, no, Twitter's never going to be, never. I mean, they're never going to be happy. And, and I'm one of those people who I still don't have, you know, a good, uh, uh, you know, thought process on the, I mean, uh, a lot of education on the minor leagues and when they give up prospects. And obviously I know who Joe Adele is, uh, but, um, you know, it just sounds so easy. I mean, what, what was one of the most common things we need to trade Justin Upton? You know, I thought we, well, you know, maybe we could trade Justin Upton for Justin Verlander, you know, Justin for a Justin, it, it works out, right? You know, it, people just don't understand that these people are signed to contracts, which at the time, I was one of the people celebrating it. I didn't think he'd re-sign with us, just like I didn't think Otani would sign with us. And uh, he did sign with us. And then, you know, we know the rest is history, and now everybody's criticizing it. But they just don't understand the economics of this game. And you just and, – and, and I don't know why there's so many examples of where the Angels did things like that that burned them. I mean, so many in our history that I don't understand why people can't just... That's, the emotion takes over, though. Well, that's the crazy thing to me, is there are folks who are angry at Billy Epler for not making these moves, but if the Angels were to make some of these deals that people were clamoring for today, then they would be essentially sentencing themselves to the same fate that they found themselves under Depoto. This farm system... Is much improved, John. Right? We we we've talked about that. It's much improved. Mm-hmm. But do you think it's ready for the Angels to go out there and start wheeling and dealing like crazy with it? 
it's not the Astros farm system, which is what got them the pitcher that everybody was complaining about. Yeah. We don't have that kind of farm system. Well, no, the Angels had the players to, to go get Grunky or anybody like him. The problem is what's left over afterwards. The Astros now have a unique problem because they've been doing this the last couple of years, going out there and making a bunch of big trades at the deadline, and they're draining their talent. Eventually, that will catch up to you. The Angels are in a position yet where they don't quite have everything they need to be a major swinger with the minor league. They're almost there. I really like the progress we're seeing with some of these draft picks. Will Wilson's destroying things down there in minors. He's moving. He's going to move quickly. He's just doing very well. So I, I look at this and I think people, you're upset basically that the Angels stood by their plan. You and I have talked about this ad nauseum. They basically stuck by their plan today. It's just, it's just you, because we had, so we had a nice run there where we got close. But, but bottom line, Derek, most people, a lot of most people don't agree with the plan. They don't, they haven't agreed with it all year. That's been one of the biggest, uh, you know, counterpoints to our podcast. People saying well, you guys are Billy Upper Butler uh, bootlickers is what I, meant. I was going to say. I haven't had anybody tell me that. I've had a couple <laughs> people insinuate that we're too positive. I, I No, I don't think we're too positive at all. I think that you can certainly make the case that Billy Upler has had his struggles with free agent signings. That's, mm-hmm. that's yeah. fair. Talked you can make that the other day. Absolutely. Yeah, you can make the case there. I also think that he's been a lot more successful with the farm system development than people are willing to give him credit for. And I don't think he's being given a fair shake with some of these decisions like today's in terms of what do you really want him to do? Do you want him to undo all the work he's done the last couple of years for a guy who either has limited control and may not resign or for a, a rental that may leave after a year? I think I'm a perfect example of of an Angel fan when I say that I was disappointed that we really didn't make any moves. But then if you turn around and Derek and you ask me what would what move would have made us competitive this season, and I would say I have no idea. I have nothing. No, I got nothing for you. Even a top premier pitcher still doesn't make us a contender this season. So, well, so by I, that logic, John. If that's the case, then why go out there and overspend now? Well, that's my point. That's what I'm saying. That's my point is that yeah. I, I'm in my own argument, in my own head, you can turn it around and say, I'm saying, I wish you, I was thinking, are we going to make a deal? When we didn't, I was disappointed. But then I realized, well, there is really no deal to make that's going to make. We really need, I'm just, I'm ready for, I'm just ready to enjoy this season and uh, as much as I can. Be a little frustrated here. Celebrate maybe you know the, some victories like that. Do- that Dodger series just really mm-hmm. got everybody ramped up. It really got everybody amped up. And then it was and a hard crash after that. Yes, I think exactly. That's part of the problem. If if the slump started during the Dodger series, then people would have been like, okay, well, it started with the Dodgers, but no, it really started with the Orioles. But John, does it really change anything overall for the offseason plan than what we've been talking about? No. And Jeff Fletcher actually. Mentioned this today on Twitter. Let me quit, quote him. This happened about eh, 40 minutes or so ago, 30 minutes. He said, Jeff Fletcher, Angels beat writer from Orange County Register, noted, I think the fact 
that they weren't willing to use up any of the prospects to get pitching shows that they are prepared to do it via free agency. Hmm. And guys like Garrett Cole are going to cost a gajillion dollars. And here's my view on that. Right now, what's the better currency in the offseason? And that's just straight cash. Yeah, money. And when you need something to fix a problem during the season, it's prospects. I don't see... I, I. with the Angels about, what, $50 million right now below the luxury tax, they can actually afford, even with the top-heavy payroll it has right now, to go out there and take some shots if they choose to this offseason. And you and I, we both agreed that we thought that they were going to be, they were kind of putting money away and saving, you know, kind of scrolling things away for the upcoming offseason. That's what we, I believed. We, we both agreed that we will our tone our tone will change next year if there isn't some sort of yeah some acquisitions yeah. in the pitching department in the pitching department and what what happened today again I'm going to say it again I'll say it for the last time yeah we had a plan and this is they're just following the plan is all they're doing the plan that we've supported this whole day this whole this whole season and so I mean I really can't you know and when I'm rational about it I really can't be critical of anything that happened today. There are several factors, too, in the trade market and the talks they were in. And we know the Angels were active. They talked to teams. In the grand scheme of things, was there an offer there that allowed the Angels to do what they need to do and protect their interests long term? My answer is mm-hmm. no, because that's, that's the MO. I've had somebody call Eplor a fraud the other day on social media. In conversation, and I was like, "How can you say he's a fraud? Everything he said he's going to do, he's done. You might not agree with some of the decisions he's made, but he's never changed his ideology. And I don't know why people expect him to change it now. Now, whether or not in the end it winds up being the right plan, we'll find out. But to call him a fraud would be incorrect. To call him a organizational planner, because that's what he's been. Really, he's been kind of reworking." the entire organization from bottom to top would be more accurate. But the complaint also is you're wasting the best years of Mike Trout's career. Well, right now I don't think it's fair because Mike Trout's re-signed this year fully knowing where things are going. But does that complaint become more valid if the Angels don't take action on the starting pitching entering next season? Oh, definitely, definitely, and I, I, we, I think we both agreed that I don't think I don't think that Mike Trout would have signed if they didn't give him some sort of, uh, some sort of plan involving, uh, you know, fixing the pitching staff. Um, I, I also, you know, I think people get the impression too, including I could have, you know, that because nothing really happened with the except with the acquisition of um, Stasi, that the Angels were doing nothing, that they were just sitting around saying, let's let this one pass. And then you got me onto Jeff Fletcher's Twitter right now, and he's quoting Billy Epler. And he said, in some form or another, deals involving all of our top prospects, every one of them but one. And he left it blank. And uh, uh, so they talked about every one of their, almost every one of their prospects with other teams. They were involved today with the exception of Joe Adele. So, I mean, just because nothing happened just means that we didn't get a deal that was – felt valued to take. Yeah. That's actually take some courage, actually, knowing how bad they're going to get ripped. 
that to me that tells me you have an organization that is standing by its convictions. And mm-hmm. what people are asking the angels to do is compromise those convictions. Let me ask you a question. If you have a job, well, obviously you have a job, but if you have a specific job you're working at a home and you've planned out the entire job, like you're building, you're building a new spare bedroom, you got all mm-hmm. the dimensions picked out, you got all the materials picked out, you have everything planned, you have a budget, you know exactly what you're buying, what you're spending. And then last minute you get, you get pressure from somebody in your family to go cheaper on the materials to save money for something else. And so you compromise yourself, you get cheaper materials, and an earthquake happens. What happens to that new room? It, it falls down. So take that analogy, go to the angels. The angels have been planning and planning and putting together and constructing this whole new organization for almost five years now. And all of a sudden, because we get a little itchy about the playoffs, we're now asking them to change that plan on the fly. What happens to that plan when something doesn't work out? You're in my wheelhouse, Derek, because I, I, I do I talk about this. I work in insurance and you talk about people talk about well I could get it cheaper here. Why can't you just match their price? Uh, because we're we're bet we you know, we, we our rates are based on what it's gonna be cost to rebuild your home, not just you know. So you, essentially I tell people in insurance, you, you don't know what you got in insurance, homeowners, auto, health until you have to use it. That's when that's when the rubber meets the road. And uh so uh and same thing here. So it's very comparable what you're talking about. You know, is it used to be really kind of a big deal, especially NFL circles, that if you don't give an NFL coach five years to really reshape the franchise, then you're not doing that coach justice. Mm-hmm. I think that goes even more in baseball because baseball has such a larger organizational structure. The Angels hired Epler almost five years ago. In the course of that five years, there have been a lot of down days in terms of player performances, in terms of signings not working out. Yet, the plan has always been the same, and it's always been kind of in the background. I don't know if this plan will work. I have to believe, based on what I'm seeing from the farm system, that it will. But, I will say, he deserves the chance to see this come to fruition. Well, he's doing something different than our previous general managers. He's not going and buying, get, getting Albert Pujols, or Josh Hamilton, or Mo, or Mo Vaughn, or you know, it's, he's not. So I mean, it's different, and it's and it's. I mean, and none of those worked out, obviously. So you know, it's it's tough. It's tough. I mean, and it takes faith. I'm not, you know, I'm not convinced. I, I'm not, you know, I'm not saying let's put a statue up for Epler. But I agree that the man deserves time. Um, and the way Brad Osmus, I mean, nobody loves Mike Social more than I. I always correct this wherever I talk about Brad Osmus, but the man's only been in the job one year, and he's really had little to no effect on who's on his roster, um, or say on who's on his roster. So that's just kind of how I view it. And and I know there are going to be people who listen to this podcast and think we're apologizing for Epler. And all I'm really saying is, I am reserving judgment. 
until he gets to his five-year mark. And that five-year mark will basically be the end of this free agency period. But I will say this. I remember the state of this organization five years ago. And I'm not talking up on top. The main, I'm talking top to bottom. I remember what was, was there, and it wasn't pretty. The team is at least able to fully function now as a full baseball organization with, with capital to make the moves they need to make. What we want to see from them is in a position to make the moves they want to make. Not just need, but want to make. And I think they're almost there. In other words, I see the lady in a tunnel with the plan. I'm willing to give them all the way until the end of the offseason to solve, to me, the one thing that has to be solved. Because you really can't send Mike Trout and Shohei Otani out there next year without the backup of a solid staff. Speaking of Shohei Otani, I'm changing my mind. I'm changing my mind on this, obviously, for obvious reasons. But as much as I love to see him bat, I really would like to see him pitch more. Um, I was really coming up that I love to watch him bat. And so, you know, I don't know, but we, you know, it's going to be very exciting to see him on the mound next year. And I, I pray for his health because uh, he would be a solid, he would be a solid one or two for us. I'm not really keen on the argument that Shohei should not pitch. I think the angels gave the man their word. And Absolutely. he owes they they owe it to him to at least give it a shot. And if it doesn't work, if his arm doesn't hold up, then you save his career by making him an all time hitter. And you find somewhere, you know, he's a good he's a hard worker. He's a hard worker. And there's no doubt in my mind that he can learn a position out there. So the very least. I agree. No, I, I'm not advocating them not to use. I just was. I've always kind of thought, you know, as a se- especially early in the season, like, boy, it's just fun to watch him bat. And the way that mm-hmm. Sosha played him so sparingly, and I understand he was injured, and, and but I mean, it, you know, it would get frustrating if they, you know, he pitches and then they, he doesn't bat the day before and he doesn't bat the day after, and then there's a rain out, and then he doesn't, you know, it's because uh, there was one time where he played. It was like eight days or something. He didn't play. And, um, but, uh, no, I, yeah, we gave you, I agree. We gave him a reward. This guy is a two way player and uh, that's what, that's what we got him for. And that's his expectation. So I am for that, but I, I'm looking excited. I'm looking to see him be an anchor on our, be excited to see him be an anchor on our uh, pitching staff. Cause we need one. Absolutely. All right, folks, it is getting near our time, but we, we promised you some CJ Wilson and we are delivering before we do. So I want you to know we're looking for sponsors. If you're interested in giving our show a little bit of advertising love, you know, come over here and work with us. You send us an email at talkinghalos at gmail.com. You can also send us a voicemail at 657-666-5453. We'll be happy to reach back out to you and talk with you about potentially working together. All right. So here we go. Here's part one of our interview with CJ Wilson. And again, let me warn you. He is not politically correct. He is not in any kind of way careful of his language. If you don't like someone being who they are, you might want to turn the podcast off now. And we're definitely not going to censor him. So there you go. Here's part one. And by the way, John, this is the first explicit episode in Talking Halo's history. Here we All go. All right. Woohoo. <laughs> 
All right, folks, I am here with former Texas Ranger and Los Angeles Angels pitcher, CJ Wilson. CJ, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. And how are you doing? Uh, thanks, Derek. You know, I'm, it's, uh, it's about 104 degrees up here in Fresno today. Uh, so I'm indoors in my office, although I've been kind of shuffling some stuff around, doing some logistics as a, as a car dealer. It's a much different job than I'm used to, I guess, as a baseball player. But it's been about three years since I last pitched. And, uh, you know, now I'm just doing doing a uh, regular guy job, I guess, in a lot of ways. And that's actually really interesting. We kind of just hinted that before we even started the interview. Your journey, your life is actually very, very interesting because even now when you're retired, you're still working hard. We yeah. talked earlier, 12 to 16 hours a day is, is what you're doing. I'm th- sitting there thinking, geez, oh, peace, this guy never stops. He never has. Yeah. That's the whole thing. I mean, like, I was very much a blue-collar guy, you know, before before I made it to the baseball in terms of, like, you know, getting the notoriety of, of uh, being a top-level player or a second-tier player or whatever you want to call what I was at the time. And I think a lot of that was because when I was younger, my parents just kind of put me in a situation where, where um, they let me know that it's really more about what you put into something, you know, versus what's handed to you. And I think I saw a lot of other kids that were handed opportunities throughout throughout life, and almost none of them made anything. And so it was more like for me, once I got into the position with baseball, especially professionally, where I could affect my own outcomes by studying a little harder, being in a little bit better shape, and you know that type of stuff that that's what allowed me to i think be a, a a better player than some of the other guys that unapologetically threw harder than me were taller had more weapons you know or whatever it was just backing up though to the beginning your baseball journey started off in southern california of all places yep what drew you to the sport in a, in a prep sports crazy place like southern california well, I was really serious about it before I ever really got anywhere uh, notoriety-wise or anything like that. I mean, I need to like let a lot of people know when I talk about this that I didn't even play t-ball. You know, I, I I didn't play until you know nine-year-old kid pitch. That was the first year I actually played baseball. So I really started a little bit late in a lot of ways, but it allowed me to kind of take take stock and take inventory of what I wanted and who I wanted to be and like all those things. I think a lot of kids hop into baseball socially and their parents put them in T-ball or coach pitch or something like that. And that's kind of their first exposure. Whereas I didn't really do that. And, and because of that, I think I was behind the development curve a couple of ways, but also mentally it allowed me to, to develop in a way that I wasn't going out there uh, with like, the inability to catch a fly ball or the inability to um, play catch or something, you know, like I, by the time I actually played organized baseball, I could already throw, I could already catch or I could already run. I understood the dynamic of baseball cause I would watch it on TV. And then, um, but we just didn't have the family coverage, you know, necessarily to get me to practices and get me to games. And so instead of having to like drop out of baseball mid season or whatever, it just made more sense to sort of wait until the family situation was stabilized. My grandpa could retire and like help me get to practices and things like that. Cause I, I grew up in a non-nuclear family, you know, my parents divorced when I was a little Mm -hmm. kid. So getting me and my brother to all the practices and all this stuff was kind of an issue. 
Um, and uh, to the point that I don't think either one of my parents wanted e- either of us to play by ourselves. They wanted both of us to play so that they could take us both to the stadium or both to the field or both to the practice facility and kind of like, you know, get in there. Yeah. And that way it could be like double babysitter for one pay, you know? Yeah. And you don't um, have to split time either. Yeah, exactly. And then, and, and, and to be honest with you, like, you know, and, and I don't really talk about this much, but I think it's like it's important for a lot of people listening to understand this, that like not everybody has this idyllic family life where they're like they're dreaming about turning into this person or that person. For me, baseball was very much a motivation to cr- to create my own history and write my own destiny. I, I honestly felt as when I was a little kid that if I was good enough at baseball, I could live the life I wanted and I wouldn't turn out like anybody that I didn't like. Does that make sense? Like it makes I, sense, yeah. I, I had people in my family that I was sort of like, oh, this guy has some issues here. This guy has some issues there. I don't really want to turn out like either of these people. So I have to kind of, I have to kind of go past that. But the only way I can afford to go past that is if I have this cool skill because we didn't come from this family where I was like, oh, dad, I want to go to Stanford. And mom's like, that's a great idea, son. Let's write the check. It wasn't like that. You know what I mean? Whereas I was a cerebral guy and I got good grades and things like that. You know, but for me, it was always a means to an end, and I always did well in school so I could get into a good school to play baseball. I didn't care about school at all. I was a very smart kid and got really good grades on, like, standardized tests or IQ tests or, you know, SATs and, you know, that type of stuff. But the majority of my motivation was I need to get into a good baseball school so I can be a baseball player so I can do what I want with my life and no one can tell me what to do after that. And that, for me, it was like a way of finding an independent path. So I didn't, cause I didn't have like a family business to get into or anything like that. And I think that's why when things were very difficult for me, like when I broke my back, my freshman year of college, it didn't slow me down. I just found another like pillar to build on, you know, to say that, okay, this like kid, that's growing up and dealing with adversity and maybe not super happy with his home life and not super happy with like how kids treat him at school, you know, okay, I'm, you know what? I dealt with this kid. He was a bully, whatever my back. Okay. I got a broken back. Fine. I'll just get past that. And then it, that's literally what I thought. Cause I was like, nothing's going to slow me down from getting to my dream of being a major league all-star baseball player. So it really was crystallized at a very young age. And I used to go to like camps and stuff. Like locally, they had the Cal State Fullerton camp. And I remember I went to the uh, Cal State Fullerton camp when I was probably twelve. And I, they had a book. They gave a they gave a book away it's called Heads Up Baseball by Ken Revisa. And it was my introduction to the mental game. And I think I had already read Wade Boggs's The Techniques of Modern Hitting and Tom Seaver's uh, Art of Pitching book. I had read Nolan Ryan's book by that point. I had read a lot of like technical manuals on like how to hit, how to pitch, things like that. But this was like a really interesting book because it talked to you about the practical applications of dealing with stress, failure, errors, strikeouts, losing, you know, not getting drafted where you wanted to get drafted on your little league team or whatever. And it was very, very practical and it got me into a great space where it helped me build a base so that I could kind of, you know, like move forward. And that was the really a key for key age for me. It was like that 12, 13 year old age. So just out of curiosity, being where you were, what was your favorite team growing up? The Lakers. I loved the Lakers. I was all about basketball. I loved basketball. I mean, I, I watched baseball, but the Lakers were so good when I was a kid. You know, we, like I was born in 1980. So 1987, the Lakers win the championship. Mm-hmm. 1988, yep. it's like Jordan versus Magic, right? I mean, like mm-hmm. this is the golden era of one-on-one basketball in terms of the NBA where you had the one star player 
on a team. And that was the guy that really got the sort of cable TV highlights. So you had Magic, uh, you had Jordan, you had Larry Bird. Um, and then as that kind of grew out, the Lakers were just such a powerhouse that it was impossible to live in Southern California and not be a Lakers fan. Nobody was a Clippers baseball? fan. Baseball, I was fans of individual players. Like, yeah, I was psyched that the Dodgers won the World Series or that, you know, um, there was an all-California World Series in, in 1989 with the Bay mm-hmm. Series. And then like, there was some stuff like that where I was very interested in, in who was on TV playing. But for me, it was more like, Ken Griffey Jr. is the best player ever. And then, and then, oh my gosh, Pedro Martinez. Oh my gosh, Roger Clemens, Nolan Ryan. Like there was these legendary Hall of Fame players that were really either kicking off their career the way Mike Trout has been kicking off his career for the last couple of years, or there were these guys that were just stalwarts like Nolan Ryan that had been around forever, which at that point, kind of the way people look at Verlander or you know, uh, Max Scherzer as these guys that are sort of elder statesmen, these really highly respected players back in that sort of 1990 range. You know, I mean, imagine thinking this, right? Like you're a little kid, you're 10 years old, Nolan Ryan's 40 and he throws a freaking no hitter. Like that's pretty badass. You're like, dang, that guy's as old as my dad. What the hell? You know? So, um, I got to read his book, right? I mean, that's kind of the way I looked at it. I just want, always wanted to learn from the best guys. And those guys were all, you know, personalities in the sport i mean you know nolan ryan had like the advil commercial and and stuff so some of these guys were national and i only followed the players because i felt like i can't root for the laundry too much because i might not get drafted by one of those guys and i was already at the point when i was probably 10 or 12 that i knew i was going to play major league baseball and that was my entire spiritual quest in life you know what i mean that and being really good at video games that's really all i cared about um (laughs) All I did was practice. Right. Well, I mean, think about this though, right? Like this is how committed I was. I literally took like my birthday money, you know, grandma gives you 50 bucks or something like that. I added up all that stuff and I would buy a batting tee and wiffle balls and hit against the side of the house. That's what I did with my money. You know, I would buy batting lessons and I would buy pitching lessons with my own money whenever I could to get that extra little edge because I felt like, okay, if I get a little bit better now while these other kids are out there playing junior lifeguards and playing AYSO soccer, I'm going to smash them next year. These kids aren't even developing and I'm putting in compound interest where I'm getting a little bit better, a little bit better, like during the downtime. And that's really honestly how I caught up because physically I was not spectacular. I was like a regular kid or a small kid on my team. Um, freshman year of high school, I was five to 105 pounds the first day of school. So, you know, was I going to make varsity as a freshman? Hell no, absolutely not. So I had to get, I had to be really determined to in, in this, in spite of like high school is a big era of change. Right. And, and that's when I really started to separate myself mentally because then I realized I could be taking down way bigger players than me because I knew the game better. I could steal their signs. I could steal second base. I could relay signs to the hitter from second I could trick them with different pitches. I knew how to cut the ball and sink the ball and do like weird stuff with the baseball. So I, I just threw my desire to get better and to win. I started creatively engaging baseball from like a, you know, a, a very professional standpoint in that regard. And you're rare too. And it worked out. You went to Lille, Marymount. You get drafted by the Rangers in the fifth round of the 2001 draft. Now you're entering the minor leagues. And what were your expectations as a young man entering the minor leagues? And what, if anything, surprised you about life in the minor leagues? Nothing surprised me at all about the minor leagues. I was very prepared um, from the scout that drafted me. 
because he had been uh, he had he had known me since I was probably 13 years old, and um, so by the time it's like junior year of college, well, this is, let me back up a second. Sophomore year of college, I won the MVP for California State Junior College Player of the Year. I didn't even get drafted because I said I wanted 100 grand. Now this is like how funny baseball is, right? At the time, a hundred grand was like literally eighth round money, maybe ninth round money, you know. Mm-hmm. And I was like, yeah, you know, I think like because I'm I got this college commitment to go to Loyola Marymount. It's like a hundred twenty thousand dollar degree. I'll give a twenty percent discount if I can get a hundred grand. I'll sign, you know. And literally sophomore year, I was like two way player. I hit, I pitched, I stole bases, I hit homers, I struck people out. I did literally everything. I was like Otani, you know what I mean? And I don't even get drafted. And it was comical to me. I was heartbroken. Um, and then the next year I go to Loyola Marymount. Our team is terrible. We go like 17 and 33 or something like that. Um, I have this dude that doesn't know shit about baseball calling my pitches. And if I shake, they pull me out of the game. So like, he doesn't know how to call pitches. He doesn't even know what kind of pitches I'm capable of throwing. He's not reading the hitter. He doesn't know what to do. So I'm li- literally like half-assed, like, oh, my God, this guy wants me to throw a freaking another slider here. Great. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. and making non-committal pitches. And this is like nine years after I read the Heads Up Baseball book about committing to your pitches and having a target and blah, blah, blah. I hit a home run my junior year. This is the funniest thing. I hit a home run off a guy. And we had a rule. The coach said, if you swing at an off-speed pitch before two strikes, I'm going to bench you. You should only hunt fastballs and swing at fastballs early in the count. Well, I mean, I played on a champion level, like a state championship contending junior college team for two years. We were really good. I was a good hitter. You know, I knew what I was doing. And if a dude threw me a cookie, I'd smash it. You know, if they just float something up there, just waffle it, right? That's the way, that's the way I've always been taught. Hit the pitches that are in your zone and use your pitch recognition skills, right? So dude throws me a 1-0 changeup, home run, right center field, you know, big bomb. I run around third base. The third base coach doesn't even want to give me a high five. I'm like, what is this shit? Like, this is crazy. So I, like, push him. Like, hey, thanks, thanks, Mo. Appreciate it, bud. And I'm, like, running home, and the coach goes, man, you smashed that ball. I said, yeah. He threw it right down the middle. It's like a total cookie. And he goes, what pitch was it? I was like, it's a changeup. And he goes, cool, good, good game. You're done. Literally wow. bench me in the third, third inning of the game. I'm like, this dude's a retard. This dude doesn't know anything about baseball. This is the worst baseball coach in the history of baseball coaches. That's literally, that's literally how I felt, and still feel that to this day. But that's another story. The um, so once <laughs> I would go talk to these scouts, and they were like, "Your coach is like a real moron, huh?" I'm like, "Well, the pitching coach doesn't deserve to be here uh, at all. He's a retard. Like he literally doesn't know anything about this at all." And our team was terrible. So it's not like he can say, oh, well, I'm responsible for this because he wasn't. But I had a I had a terrible year statistically, and then I get drafted in the fifth round. And I'm like, how does this make any sense in the universe? I literally broke like all these statistical things the year before and then can't get a, can't get any love. Didn't even get drafted in like the 20th round as a, as a courtesy. And now I get drafted in the fifth round. I'm like, all right, well, hey, <laughs> put on the hat. Time to go. And um, – but but Tim Fortuna was my scout, and he was fantastic. He actually would stay in contact with me afterwards, and he really told me, hey, this is what you have to expect. Because he played the minor leagues and the major leagues. He played the minor leagues for like 11 or 12 seasons before he made the majors. So he really knew the minors and said, this is your challenge. This is what you have to deal with. You know, go in there, work on your Spanish skills because you're going to have Latin teammates. And if you, they're not going to speak English at all. So if you can communicate with them, they'll love you. 
you know, if you can just be a buddy, just be a normal guy, treat him normal. He's like, you're going to play with all these dudes that are from the South that aren't used to hearing Spanish, you know, but you're from Southern California. So you can probably get by, you'll be okay. And that's literally what I did. And I just felt like, Oh my God, this is the best thing ever. I get to call my own pitches. Yay. You know what I mean? I was like so liberated. Uh, I felt great. It, It was amazing. It was like being told to like, that you have to do something that you hate doing your whole life. And then all of a sudden someone releases you to the wild and you've been prepping for it. You know, it'd be like a doomsday prepper. Once the bomb really goes off, they would actually know what to do. They'd be like, yes, I know where the water is. I've got a dirt bike. You know what I mean? Like they would be totally wired. And that's what it would, that's what it felt like for me. So I just flew through the, the miners and like my first four stops, it was like my first full season, my first half season and full season, I, cu- I, I jumped four levels, you know? So I really just, flew through there. Just a quick question there about that, yeah. because your your miners' numbers, they're interesting because you they, they have you bouncing back and forth between starting and relieving. And well, then- so, it, so in 2002, we went to, like, what was called a tandem rotation because this, uh, this other guy that I'm also not a big fan of was the pitching coordinator for the, Angel, or for the Rangers at the time. So his idea was in order to get us more opportunity to deal with our butterflies, not not joking here because he thought we were all pussies, um, he wanted us to pitch more often. And then that was going to get us better feel, like learn how to throw our off-speed pitches better or whatever. And then that was kind of the deal. So in Charlotte, which was Port Charlotte, Florida State League, high A ball, um, they had us pitching every fourth day. So we would switch with another guy. So like I would pitch and my partner for a little while was a guy named Darren and Darren would pitch. So I'd throw my 60 pitches or 75 pitches. Then he would throw his 60 or 75 and then they'd have like a reliever that would kind of fill in. I mean, obviously every once in a while guys get nuked and they only throw 40 pitches because they gave up like four in one inning and the coaches are like trying to win. But um, yeah, so that's why I had a bunch of like relief stuff uh, in 2002. And then um, at the all-star break, this is just sort of how I was always butting heads with people coaches and people that I felt like were looking for me to 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 kiss the ring so to speak because I didn't believe in that I was just like hey I'm here to perform I'm here to win and I want to get out of here and get to the majors and that's all way that was my 100% focus I had I was not interested in partying I was not interested in chasing chicks from like Savannah Georgia or Port Charlotte Florida or Pulaski Virginia or Oklahoma City I had zero interest in that all I wanted to do was be a better baseball player and then go as far as I could and, and while, while my body was still in one piece, you know, because I was just a hardworking guy and I outworked everybody. And that's kind of why I beat them to the mine or, th- you know, through the majors or whatever. So I, I was like eight and oh with a point eight ERA at the all-star break in that, that year. And um, they're like, oh, we can't call you up till you lose a couple games. I was like, are you serious? You won't send me to double A until I lose games? That's literally the, the weirdest thing I've ever heard of in my life. You know what I mean? And it, it was very hard for me to like to understand that these people still had control over my career, even though I felt like I was doing everything right. You know? But I was told, hey, you need to have more fun out there. I'm like, well, I'd put a bunch of zeros up. That was fun. Like, what do you mean? Like, I need to be like <laughs> dancing around like Jose Lima? Like, I don't do that. That's not me. You know, I'm, I'm like, I'm put on a robot face and I pitch. And that's what I'm doing. And I have fun in the dugout. Like, playing outfield's fun. Pitching is like focused and stressful. It's like doing surgery. I never had fun going out there and like, oh, I'm going to go pitch. You know, I did, I'd have fun throwing a bullpen. Like, oh, let me see if I can throw a, put your glove over here. Let me see if I can throw a slider and like backdoor the pitch this way. Like, being creative like that. But 
during the game, I didn't, I didn't, I never had so much confidence that I was going to say like, oh, well, these guys all suck. So I'm just going to go out there and like put my hat sideways and just, you know, pretend like I'm this. And then, you know, just, I always felt like I had to be really robotic to get everything out of my time because I didn't have, I didn't have the luxury of talent. You know, I didn't have a hundred mile an hour fastball. I could just be like, oh, well, okay, I guess I'm behind the count. Let me just throw 300 mile an hour fastballs and then I'll just strike this guy out. You know, some guys have that ability and it literally stunts their growth. And, you know, guys like when, when I was coming up through the minors, like Volquez, uh, Edinson mm-hmm. Volquez, I played with him and he could just like, just drop down a little bit further back toward like, he literally like put his, his hand with the baseball on it, like almost on in the dirt, like reaching back, you know, like a, to, to fire the ball even harder. And he would launch the ball and he would throw the ball like 94 to 98 miles an hour. And I would be like, I wish I could do that. I just wish I could do that. And guys would be like, well, you throw 92. That's not bad. I'm like, yeah, but he throws 98. That's so much cooler, you know? And it's, you always, in the minors, you always have this kind of psychology that you're looking at how good everybody else is physically. And like, oh man, if I just had that guy's fastball or that guy's height or that guy's slider, you're always kind of jealous and player hating because it's so dog eat dog. It's so competitive, you know, that it's, 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 especially once you get to like double A, triple A, then it, then it gets really psychological. Like where your teammates are sort of your competitors at your same position. So you, your friends you know, being friends with like the catcher or the first baseman because you're not a catcher and not a first baseman, you know? Gotcha. And, and you did eventually move through the system. You get to the Rangers in 2010, 2011. You combine for a 31-15 record, 376 strikeouts, two seasons of a sub-3-4 ERA. And then in 2011, after the season's over, you're a free agent. And you just been talking about the entire, you know, your entire career, you had to go against the grain because you wanted to be you. Well, now you have to choose, and you choose the Angels. What right. convinced I, you to choose the Angels? My two choices were the Marlins and the Angels at that point. You know, um, I, was, I was looking at it like in very broad terms. I asked a lot of advice for a lot of people that had been through it before. You know, I, I got a text message from Tori Hunter, who was on the Angels, and he was like, dude, I mean – if we're not offering you the most money, you got to think about your family. Like, go get more money somewhere else. And I was like, yeah, okay, I get it. And other people were like, dude, it doesn't matter if you're getting a five-year contract, you're getting a huge contract, so go where you want to play. Go with the players that you think will help you win a championship. Go with the, the, the place that will help you, that you think will take the best care of your arm and your body as like a me- medically, you know, like who has the best mm-hmm. doctors. Like there's a lot of different factors. Go to the best pitchers park. Oh, go, go where you want to play, go where you want to live, go where you want to live in the off season, go with the manager that you respect, go, you know, like there's a, so many factors that go into it. It was not as fun of a, of a thing as I thought it was going to be because the whole season leading up to that, I was the free agent on the team and there was a lot of, there's a lot of, uh, I don't want to say buzz because I was never a player like Harper or, you know, a guy like that, that was, you know, a, a couple hundred million dollar player, you know, from, from the start, I was a guy that was a sort of a late bloomer career wise. And I was, you know, determined to take advantage of the fact that I felt like I was always a starter, you know, and that I was being kept from starting my whole career. And I think that's what really kind of stuck with me is that I wanted to start in 2007 I was told no. I wanted to start in 2008. I was told no. I wanted to start in 2009. And then I finally got the chance to start in 2010 when I was like literally 29 years old. So I think a lot of people, they're, they're so concerned that if they don't have early success, then they're not going to have success, which I think is not really the, that's not the case. I obviously had two careers. I had my reliever career where I saved like 50 games. And, and even, even there, I felt like I could have been a better closer if I would have had the chance, but I, 
I didn't really have the chance. You know, I, I got chances in 2011, then they gave it to Joaquin Benoit. And then in 2008, I got hurt. I had like 20 saves or whatever. And then in 2009, Frankie Francisco was the closer, but he couldn't pitch back-to-back days. So I still ended up setting up games and closing games, you know, because I could pitch three mm-hmm. or four days in a row. So I really, to be honest with you, I feel like I probably wasted a lot of bullets pitching out of the bullpen because it's so hard on your arm when you're a setup guy and you have to pitch back-to-back days. But anyways, the whole season during 2011, it was like, you know, they do those things like, oh, who's going to sign where? And people are like, oh, Wilson's going to go to the Nationals. And Wilson and Prince Fielder are both going to go to the Nationals. And I was kind of like, I could go to the Nationals. That would be cool, live in D.C. I always wanted to play in the National League because mm-hmm. I, I hit in college. So I felt like I'm a better hitter than most of the pitchers that I pitch with. So I feel like maybe I can out-hit their pitcher and that helps me somehow. I can bunt and then steal, steal a base. But, uh, you know, when it came down to it, there was I thought there were going to be more teams that I had to choose from based on my success or skill level. But because I wasn't with Scott Boris, I think some teams like were sort of eliminating because the, there's this whole political thing with some of the some of the agents have some of the reporters kind of in their pocket and they feed information, even if it's bad. Like there's a story that came out that I wanted one hundred and twenty million dollars. And I was like, dude, I know I'm not one hundred twenty million dollar pitcher. I mean, come on. Like, that's stupid. I'm thirty one. You know, it's not going to happen. So when that story came out, I knew who leaked it. And I knew I knew kind of how it went, because I remember the conversation that that guy had with my agent and it, it, it hurt my value and it hurt my ability to, to maybe have conversations with the Dodgers or the Yankees or some of the other teams that would potentially be in on like larger contract players, you know, so to speak. Yeah. But, um, it was pretty easy decision to sign with Anaheim when the conversation was Mike Sosha five years at the number that I got and the Marlins with the crazy flipping Marlin in left center field and, and Ozzie Guillen, <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah. at the end of the day, I felt like Ozzie Guillen was a loose cannon. And based on the Marlins unwillingness to include a no trade clause in the contract, I was really worried that the way that they had structured the contract, like with the Marlins, which was for significantly more money. Like, I mean, it was over 15 million more really. Plus, you know, when you look at the tax savings from living in Florida, all that stuff, like money wise, it would have been Florida 100% because I would have got more money, you know. But I was like, oh man, are they going to be good? Like, what are they going to do? You know, like, how's it going to work? You know, how how is this team, and they keep blowing things up there. They've done it like three times already. Like, how are they going to, how am I going to stay there for six yeah, years? Yeah, you know? and they did it that year too. They did it, yeah. So they signed Burley, Jose Reyes, all these other guys, and then they just blew everything up. And I was like, well, that could have been me. That would have been sweet, you know? So, and then I would have ended up in, like, Toronto or someplace that I that I did not have interest in signing, you know? And I think what happens is at the end of your career, you always look back at, like, the turns and, like, what could have been differently or whatever. And the Rangers offered me a contract before the season started. They offered me, like, a three-year, $36 million contract. And I was like, dude, you guys just offered Cliff Lee $140 million. Like, how is this... Like, I, I know that Cliff Lee's a good player, and he's better than me, but he's not five times better than me. That's crazy. So I went out there that year in 11 and had a 2.9 ERA in Texas. And uh, I was like, hey, this is pretty much like, if I can pitch in Texas, I can pitch anywhere. But it was very easy to pick Mike Sosha and the Angels organization, being a, a Southern California guy, knowing that they were going to sign pools, that whole thing. I was like, dude... This guy just beat me in the World Series, but I'd love to be his teammate. I'd love to see what his deal is. I'd love to play with Mike Trout and all these other guys that I feel like are these these young up and coming guys. It was you know I got to play with Ibar, 
and Dan Heron. Dan Heron actually uh, and I played against each other in college, and we had a game where we hit home runs off of each other as pitchers um, in the same game. So both of us went like eight innings through 150 pitches and hit home runs. It was like the weirdest, ugliest box score ever. Um, you know, in that in that regard, it looked like a phone number. Um, but I felt like that was a good opportunity for me, and it was kind of a no brainer. Like, uh, if you're a pitcher, Anaheim's a great place to pitch. You know, now going back and playing Texas and getting clobbered by the Rangers, like <laughs> after signing with the Angels, didn't feel good <laughs> at all. Gotcha. Yeah, I'm sure <laughs> it, it felt like crap. But um, you know, if the Rangers would have offered me like a five year deal, I probably would have just stuck with the Rangers just because I felt like the team was so good. You know, and after going to the World Series twice in a row, that would have been a safer play, to be honest with you. But they didn't. They didn't want to do that. They wanted to go after Darvish, and um, and then they signed Matt Harrison to like a sixty million dollar deal, and uh, Darvish to a sixty million dollar deal or whatever it was. So they didn't. They didn't want to spend any money on me because they were like, they told me this. They're like, oh yeah, we're gonna offer your contract. They kept saying that, and then they never did. So it was kind of weird. All right, so tune in for our show tomorrow night after we do the Cleveland Indians preview and for the second part, C.J. Wilson's wonderful interview. So, Derek, in part two, are you going to mention that he's my first bobblehead? Come on. Wonderful. I will be tweeting that out. I'll, I'll advertise the episode. Can I tweet out my, my bobblehead? You, well, you might as well. You might as well. Yeah. All right, folks, it is time for us to go. As you can tell, John is a little um, – he's felt a little – happy now so he's he's changed his his mood since beginning the show don't forget to follow us on twitter at talking halo search for our page also on facebook going by the name of talking halo you can find me derek c paula at dc paula and john crane at jigs crane john and don't forget us on spreaker and apple music and all those other wonderful podcast outlets out there we really appreciate you guys checking us out make sure you subscribe so for john and the entire talking halos team this is derek c paula saying take it easy And we'll see you in Cleveland. The NBA is back. Where else can a city this loud be this left on? And 30 feet is still in range. Where else is history? Still in the make. The NBA, only here. Season begins December 22nd on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. The NBA is back. Where else can a city this loud be this left on? And 30 feet is still in range. Where else is history? Still in the make. The NBA, only here. Season begins December 22nd on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV.